All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. They're coming to get you, Barbara. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Here's Johnny. Vanity. Definitely my favorite set. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. The power of Christ compels you! This is my boomstick! What's your favorite scary movie? Poorheads, and welcome to Shiver, a horror movie podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Daniel DeBona. And I'm David Uyoa. And we are joined this week by first-time guest host, but uh, host of his own podcast. We're joined by Eric Klein. Eric, how you doing, man? Good. How are y'all? Thank you for having me. Yeah, so... No, thank you uh, for being here. We're very happy to have you because a lot of times when we have folks on, we have on other people who are big horror movie people. And I know that, Eric, horror is not necessarily your thing, but literature is. So this seemed like a great opportunity for us to cross over not only with somebody who will be able to match what Dave can do when it comes to talking about the literature of things, but also bring on somebody who you have your own podcast where you do like literature turned into movies and things like that. So um, tell us about your podcast and and, and uh, why you're on with us today. Yeah. Um, thank you again for having me. Like, I, I, I hope that our bo- both of our podcasts can collaborate again in the future my podcast is uh called the projectionist lending library i'm a co-host with my uh, good friend uh dr nathaniel booth um and our like our whole shtick is we you know read 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 the text watch adaptations and kind of uh talk about both of them and and it's not a thing of like oh was the movie better was the book better type of thing we're not interested in that but more about like how do the different uh, stories and modes like work in their different kinds of media. Um, admittedly, we do watch some movies or read some books that aren't that great. And we'll be honest about that, but it's not <laughs> like one of those it's, 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 I, I, I always want it. Like it's, I mean, we all know oh, the book's better, right? Like it's not that kind of thing of a value, but not always, but not always. Oh, not, absolutely not always. Not yeah. always. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, off the top of my head, deliverance jaws, uh, Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park. Three, three, I, three I, would, movies, I would three push, movies I would that are better against, than the I would push against Deliverance. I would I would push hard against Deliverance. I think the book is much much better than the movie. We have an episode on Deliverance actually. Oh, I got to watch then. Um, whichever. Yeah, I, I yeah I think that uh, that one. But yeah, Jaws, um, fucking Doctor Strangelove, like. <laughs> the book that that's based yeah. on is it's like Red Alert. Or I don't know, but yeah, I, I didn't mean, even know Doctor Strangelove was based on a book. Yeah, it's one mm-hmm. of those things, kind of like Jaws, right? I mean, I guess Jaws, we know it's based on a book, just right? Of the cultural imprint of it, but it, it nobody really knows the book, right? <laughs> yeah, you say Steven Spielberg, and people know who you're talking about, but you say right. Benchley, and they're like, uh, who? <laughs> so, whenever we have somebody on for the first time, Eric, we usually like to ask them where their horror journey started. But since you're not necessarily a horror guy, I'll just ask you: Do you have any experiences with horror in your when you were younger that were that are just imprinted on you? Just just take us through an early horror experience for you. Absolutely. So, I I, I am a big I am a big horror fan. Okay. Um, I, I watch a lot of horror movies. I, I, I fully admit, not as deep as y'all, but I watch a lot of horror movies. I like horror. 
a lot. Uh, my wife and I, every we're, we've been going through our list this month. We watch a, a movie every, a horror movie every day in October. Nice. Um, but my my horror journey, as you say, uh, I will never forget. Um, I was in, I think I was in sixth grade, so what, like twelve years old, uh, and I did a lot of theater as a kid. Uh, and we had a cast party. I was in a play like one summer, uh, in the twin cities. And I had, we had a cast party at somebody's house and we were, um, I was among like the younger of the, of the people there, not the youngest, but, uh, we thought it'd be fun to play with Ouija boards and mm-hmm. watch the exorcist. <laughs> and y'all, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you like for that entire summer, I slept in our upstairs living room my parents house is like a very very big like it's like kind of ranch style so it's like very Mm -hmm. open um a rambler whatever but it's very open but like i slept on the couch that entire summer with every single light on (laughs) i was fully convinced i was getting possessed and still to this day the exorcist is in my mind like one of the scariest movies and i'll watch it with people that haven't seen it before they're like, you know, they might be like, oh, that's kind of creepy or like, I mean, some of them think it's actually weirdly. I, I'm weirded out by people that think it's funny. But like, um, but that movie I've never still understood like that. I yeah, terrified. Yeah. I don't either. <laughs> I was actually I was in my undergrad. I was in a class that was monsters in film and mm-hmm. we watched The Exorcist and there was this one kid in there. And um, when she has the crucifix and she's like, yeah, the stabbing, right. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like, he he thought that was funny, and there and like he and we were all like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, what? Yeah, like, no, that's that's yeah, the one the source material's not funny. Um, nope. and and you you speak with uh, William Peter Blatty, and he says that you know it is not it, it's he approaches it as a as a documentary novel. Um, and uh, William Friedkin is definitely not a funny guy either. Um, yeah. he, he just passed recently actually. yeah very recently um yeah um and i was actually just where he filmed uh that incredible uh car chase in um french connection oh um, really yeah I, I was driving right under those tracks and i was like oh this is where he almost hits the dude um so anyway um yeah like there is no humor it is no. totally devoid of humor um i grew up very very catholic so as um like it, it in the the cuban culture um like catholicism's kind of like baked into everything that you do um uh, and it's all that spanish influence right you know you go out you colonize and you convert that's that's what you did and if you didn't you know you, just another auto de fe you know what's what, what's another <laughs> um so um although i don't really consider myself catholic anymore um like that is something that like through my childhood was like the devil was the big bad and right. here here was this little girl who you know when i saw the movie I, I couldn't have been much older than she was and i was like holy fuck and then there was you know the whole thing that this is based on a true story yeah and 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 you you can go to the steps in washington and and see it and it's like wow it's fucking real man yeah that's um that's a good one 
that is that's that a real is, good one. Yeah, she's not saying she's a demon. She's saying she's the devil himself, right? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's so the like, scene. It, it, I just got goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like that. I mean, like if if we were to kind of trace everything back, I, I think the earliest movie I can remember that scared me was Ernest Scared Stupid. Um, I love that movie, dude. It's yeah, not it's a so bad great. pick. Um, but but the actually and and ever since then I've. I, I've always liked horror movies. I would say that probably Halloween is probably my favorite. Um, That's not a bad pick yeah. at all. Yeah. Great like, choice. I, I love that movie. Um, so we are going to this week, we're going to do something that we have not done since I've been on the show. I know before right. I was on the show, you guys did uh, Haunting of Hill House. Mm -hmm. But we are going to approach an entire series uh, with Fall of the House of Usher from Mike Flanagan here. So uh, what we are going to do is we're going to do the first four episodes today. So if you're watching, listening right now, we are going from Midnight Dreary through Black Cat. That is what mm -hmm. we're looking at today. And we just didn't want to cram eight hour-long episodes into one 90-minute of what we've got here. Because if you have been listening to us, you know how we feel about Mike Flanagan. And it's going to take us 90 minutes to get through the four episodes. And that'll still even be kind of... Yeah, we very, it, right? <laughs> we very easily could have made two months worth of content out of this and just done an episode a week and been great with it. So yeah. we are going to approach Fall of the House of Usher part one, and we're going to start. Well, where should we start? Well, I suppose at the beginning. So we're going to start with episode one, A Midnight Dreary. Now, when this starts... We don't really know exactly what we're in for. I think that one thing that we kind of maybe all knew when we were going in is that Mike Flanagan didn't just approach this as just taking Fall of the House of Usher and creating a miniseries. Mm -hmm. He approached it as this is going to be a tour de force of Edgar Allan Poe's works. So, Dave, start us off. How does episode one just set all of this up? So um, episode one kind of establishes that um, they're going to use um, the framing of the fall of the House of Usher to kind of weave all of the uh, po the chosen post stories into the series. Um, and um, with the exception of, I, I guess, like a um, like a, a, a prologue that kind of sets up um, everything with the Usher family, um, we then get what is the the opening of the story, the fall of the house of Usher with Roderick Usher sitting down with um, who is in the story, just an unnamed friend of Roderick Usher. Uh, but in this series is um, Augustine Dupin, who is um, actually the very first literary detective, um, not Sherlock Holmes. Uh, everyone kind of credits uh, Doyle with the creation of the literary detective, and that is not the case. That is an American thing. So the Brits can fuck right off. Um, <laughs> the um, we we get a, a really interesting exchange where, like, clearly there is something here between Usher and Dupin. And obviously, in the literary world, these two characters never interacted, but it brings this really unique element in where there is tension between Usher and the the foil in the story right. where that tension wasn't there in the original short story and we're kind of treated to just like an exposition of the usher family which is um really expanded 
from what we got in in the original short story the original short story really just focuses on roderick and madeline his sister um but here we have all of these characters from the world of edgar Allan poe woven in as uh as roderick's children so we get uh we get all sorts of different characters coming in, different stories coming in, and you really kind of just get this um, family drama element from this right. first episode. Um, I will say I think that this first episode is probably the weakest in the series um, only because it handles so much of the world building that um, kind of just the rest of the show runs with. Um, I remember watching the very first episode of Hill House, uh, the first episode of Bly Manor, the first episode of Midnight Mass, and thinking even uh, Midnight Club, and thinking this is fantastic. Right. And watching the first episode here, and while I love all the technical aspects of it, I thought, well, it was okay. I wasn't giving up on it in, in any way. Like Flanagan, if if the first seven episodes had been absolute shit, I would have continued watching. <laughs> um, because I, I, you know, I, I pray at the altar of Mike, Mike Flanagan. Um, so it, it, it is a little slow because it's kind of setting everything up. But for, for me, I think that first episode um, like walks so that the rest can run. Because from that point on, it's really just kind of insanity that's going right. on in, in, in the best way possible. Eric, what do, what do you think about? We'll start us off with episode one, man. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 I and I actually just re like I, I was saying before we started recording, I actually did just rewatch episode one just to kind of like refresh my memory a little bit. Um, <clears throat> I I agree with what Dave is saying here that it kind of uh, is is a slower start than Flanagan's other shows, um, and I and I think that part of that which we'll get into is I think it's just kind of setting it up that this thing is way more unwieldy than most of his shows. Um, and one of the things I do like about it upon rewatching it, it has a lot of foreshadowing in it. Um, right. it the mm -hmm. when it when it's the uh, like when they're in the court for example, when we first see all the kids, like every yeah. shot, it's like, this is how that like, well, I guess like inverted, but like, this is the order they're going to die, which is also their age. Um, there's a lot of uh, nice little nods about kind of what's going to be happening. Um, and it does introduce the, the actual setting of Roderick and DuPont. Uh, mm -hmm in this in this house of usher which that's that setting and that room is awesome yeah um, and just like how they're just kind of sitting there talking uh and and we we get this sense in the first episode that we don't learn it until later like there's a history here like these these dudes know each other well not like right. oh not just like oh they've just been in this court battle together two weeks ago like they have a history and I, I I I really appreciate the ways that the first episode kind of anticipates a lot of what's going to happen, um, but it, yeah, it is it is I think a little bit of a slower opening, and um, by in even within this first episode, it's trying to do so much uh, that I think is true for the show in general. 
my favorite thing about episode one, because it was a little bit slower, was I loved playing the okay, wait, who were they in other Mike Flanagan projects game? Yes, yeah. right. Like I, I just I, I love I love doing that. So you know, like uh, uh, Leo took me a second. Like I immediately thought, wait, is he the cop from Midnight Mass? But then, but then it was it took a second because his hair's a lot better. Looks like he put on some bulk. You know, so it's like so I, I really did the one that took me the longest, oddly enough, was um, remembering that uh, Juno was the girl from Midnight Club, because as much as I love yeah. Mike Flanagan, I'm kind of white Midnight Club from my mind. Um, and so that one took me a little bit. But I did enjoy I do love when a director has a group of people that they just love. And Dude, it's classic. Gonna, yeah, it's, it's, it's classic theater. Like, this is my troupe. Like it's, right. it's, it's a theater yeah. troupe. Like, and, and I do love that. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, and it, and so you, you feel immediately kind of welcomed by this whole thing because you're like, okay, Flan this Flanagan and Flanagan's folks. Right. So you're, you're in there and you're ready to see what they can do with episode one. I did really, I loved the setting. Like you said, Eric, I thought that like the, the quite like putting them in a quite literal house of Usher that was, you know, falling apart around them. And, but they did it in a way that wasn't just ridiculously on the nose. You know, like when you say it like that, it sounds like it is, but it fit what was happening because this whole thing is him reminiscing on the, the entire story. So where did, so where does the story start? It starts at the beginning. And so they're sitting in where his story started. So I loved that. Um, what's his name? Greenwood, uh, the guy who plays Bruce Greenwood, Bruce yeah. Greenwood the guy who plays uh, Roger Cusher is just immediate. He comes out of the gate just banging on all yeah. eight cylinders. Who is like, not the original casting for for Roderick, right? I uh, did not know that. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm I'm not gonna who, who was originally cast. Um, I should have oh. probably had this already ready, <laughs> but um, no, they had. Um, well. Whoever it was, I, I doubt they could have done better. No, yeah, no, yeah. They, they they couldn't have. I I think like whatever happened, the things that happened, it was kind of like uh, inappropriate behavior, and he's an older guy, and is like, oh, mm. like these actors. Oh, these are yes, you're right. It was Frank Langella. Yes. Oh, there it yeah. is. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I I read that too, and it just left my mind. Yeah, and mm -hmm. and I think that's one of the best things that could have happened to the show yeah, because I think absolutely. Bruce Greenwood is fantastic in it, and also, um. I mean, let me know what y'all think or, or correct me if I'm wrong, but nothing comes to mind where he carries a show or movie like he's always supporting. Right. Yeah. Um, I think like the biggest role um, or, or like most important role he might have is in Gerald's game. Yeah. Which is another Flanagan um, work. Um, I mean, he's got a pretty major role in okay. the star I, trek that, movies but right. uh but he's not you know captain kirk you know right. he's, uh, pike, isn't he? he's, he's pike. pike yeah, yeah. and uh, then i know, mean so even even in gerald's game i mean that's that's carlo gugino's uh vehicle it's, like, it's I mean, definitely gugino's thing yeah you know? uh he's you know he's he's there to let her story happen right it, so, it was it was pretty delightful just to really see him shine in a way that mm -hmm. i mean i i I've seen Star Wars. I haven't seen the other movie you're talking about, but in a way, like I personally haven't really seen him shine before. Yeah. He, you like everything you see him in, even as a supporting actor, like, you know, he's fully capable of carrying something. It's like, and, and so it was great to, to see that. 
So, I agree. Yeah. So I I loved him. I I loved the the way they they establish his backstory where they take us through. I mean, so we're only doing the first four episodes here, but through the flashbacks, we still haven't even really seen through four episodes how he ended up in control of right. this pharmaceutical right. company. And so I love you know seeing where it starts off where such a big part of his his character is the fact that his dad never acknowledged him. And, and he was, he was, you know, a, a bastard child of, um, of this pharmaceutical giant. And so it makes it such a big part of his character where, you know, that very first thing where he's talking about, you know, if you're an usher, the gates are open. And, mm-hmm. and I love how they establish that right away because throughout these episodes, you see where he definitely always feels like that, but the kids themselves have drawn those lines. And it's like, no, we're the three actual Usher children and you're the three bastards or, you know, or two. Yeah. Three and right. three. Yeah. Two, so, three but and two, three, two yeah. and yeah, yeah, two and yeah, three. two. Yeah. Two and three. So, um, but like, I just, he, he was so strong in establishing all of those things that by the end of that first episode, I really felt like I knew who Roderick Usher was. And, you know, you're, you're getting all of these sides at him because you've got Dupin coming at him, you know, and he's talking about what there's 70 something charges and he starts off saying you got away with it. And it's there's this really great dynamic from them where it doesn't it never just starts to feel dusty that this whole thing is one guy telling another guy a story, mm-hmm. you know, tale as old as time type thing. You've got to find a way for that to still feel fresh and and make it make sense and i think they established that very well in this first episode and part of how they did that is i think um something that he did to great effect in the haunting of hill house which is with the use of like out of focus and like just kind of like out of the way uh ghosts yeah um and and the way that they do this by um, you know, explaining that um, Roderick Usher has, um, you know, vascular dementia right. is is fantastic because now we can we can play with these characters, not just in the past, but also in the present. And Roderick Usher in the original short story is a character that's plagued by his um, his family history. And, um, you know, the, the literal fall of the house and the, you know, uh, metaphorical fall of the house are happening at the same time. And we're seeing that play out um, in Bruce Greenwood in like a, a, a beautiful, beautiful way. Um, and it, it, to me, that's really what this episode does so well is it just it, it establishes the world that we're playing in. There is something supernatural happening here. Um, is it just in his mind um, or is is there is there more to this? Um, you know, so while, while it isn't, I think the it is definitely the weakest of the first like the premiere episodes of a Flanagan show. That's not by any means saying that it is weak. Right. Um, it, it, it is still a monster of an episode that is like brilliantly acted. Um, you know, the set design is amazing and, and being able to, you know, kind of dig into those characters that we know are dead 
and use them in the present. It's uh, it, it, it's incredible. Dude, you're talking about the, the out of focus ghost when he starts mm -hmm. talking about his mom and he's like, well, I just thought I should bring her up because she's here. Yeah. And so it's showing that shot of Dupan and, and I'm watching it with my friend and she's like, there she is, there she is. I'm like, I, I don't, I don't see her. And she's like, there, there, there. And I'm just, I'm just lost. Yeah. I'm like, I do not see her. Then all of a sudden you just see like it, you just see the ghost move. Like I just, it that just shot through me and I was like, okay, yep, there we go. Very flat again. I'm good. Yeah. Now. Like I'm, I'm in a good place. And I love that because Usher is telling us the story right. through Dupin. Um, we never get to see her either because he says, no, I'm, I'm not going to indulge you in this. Right. We never get to see her because we are Dupin in, in, in this instance. Um, and, and I, I think that, Flanagan understands the way stories are told. He understands the way that authors use literary devices. And he understood that about the fall of the house of Usher. And although it wasn't Dupin, it was, you know, some unnamed character. We are that unnamed character. That's why Poe never named him because right. it is you, it is me. It is whoever is reading the story at that time. And so even though now we have a named character who has a personality, we don't know anything about him yet. Right. We just know that there's some history there. So I, I, I think it's a, it, that particular one d that does establish, you know, that there's there's something um, supernatural happening here is also done in, in, in a very literary way. And I think that everything in this book happens uh, in this, in this show happens in a very literary way um, where like, yeah, you, you can kind of predict where things are going, but it's that mounting tension that um, that always leads to the big payoff in the post story, because right. in post stories, we always knew where it was heading. Yeah. Because he had, he, he had a very, heavy handed way of, of telling, like he, he just flat out told you like in the title, you know, the telltale heart, what's this going to be about? I fucking wonder, you know, <laughs> it's in the title. And so when you get to see the payoff in the show, it very much mimics what Poe was doing on the page. I, I disagree a little bit. Like I, I agree that Flanagan um, absolutely knows how to tell a story, but I mm -hmm. feel like he doesn't really, um, actually understand Poe very well. In fact, I feel like the very format of the show goes against Poe's philosophy of composition and the unity of effect, not just over the arch of the show, but in each individual episode. Like, he, I feel like he misses the point of, of much of what Poe is doing and that in a lot of this, it's it's Easter eggs of Poe. It's like, hey, like, oh, oh, here we got the black cat. Oh, here we got the jester. Here we got the brick. Like, it opens up with Pink Floyd, another brick in the wall, <laughs> right? And like, and we see this brick wall. It's like, hmm, I wonder what that is, Cask of Amontillado. Um, and and so, like, it, it, like I I understand how he's making these nods to everything, but to me, anyways, um, and and I, I I'll say right now, y'all would have been like so much better off with my co-host instead of me who's like actually somebody who's like a Poe scholar oh um, wow where we're like but he's he lives in China it's it's hard to schedule with him mm -hmm. um but that I, I feel like there's a way in which while I like the show and I like what it does I don't think that it captures Poe very well at all okay well 
Speaking of capturing Poe and the little nods, we start to get a little bit more on the nose as we work our way through the episodes when we open up episode two and we see that it is called The Mask of the Red Death. So in this one, we start to realize that the 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 framework of this show is going to be each episode is about one of the kids while mm-hmm. also being about Roderick. So Mask of the Red Death tells the story of Perry or Prospero, Prospero. As, his, as his name is. So Eric, take us through episode two, man. So, um, uh, episode two, Prospero, who's the, he's the youngest, right? Yes. Yeah. And he's, and he's the one that, um, no one takes seriously. He wants to use sort of his family money to establish this sort of franchise of nightclubs. Um, and <laughs> Madeline, uh, Roderick's sister basically says no. And right. And Roderick kind of does whatever Madeline says. Right. Um, and so he's like, I'm going to prove them wrong. And, and we're going to uh, uh, he's going to hold this party in this old abandoned building that um, for Fortuna, Fortuna, Fortunato, Fortunato, Fortunato uh, <laughs> pharmaceuticals like once owned, they um, have this sort of mask party there. Uh, and like the story, everybody dies there. And, and in this case, um, everybody's kind of dancing. It's ecstatic. And uh, he, he has this great idea to turn on the sprinklers and everyone will get wet and it'll be this kind of uh, ecstatic moment. Right. And instead, because it was this old pharmaceutical building, a lot of the waste was in these tanks and it's all like acid that pours on all these people and, right. they, all, and they all die from it. Right. So when when we look at this one and we compare it to now, I will admit I have read some Poe, not a ton of Poe, but I do. I, I love Mask of the Red Death. Like this is one that, that I've read. So I was very excited to kind of see how this one was going. And I've always loved Mask of the Red Death because I I, I love a good story with a bunch where a bunch of rich people, you know, get their comeuppance. Right. Like that's just that. that That's how, always how very good, Dickensian of you. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's, <laughs> It's 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 on brand for me. And so I the whole time, as soon as he started talking about the sprinklers, I was like, OK, like I, I exactly I see where this is going. Like I, I, they can explain it however they want. When the sprinklers come on, everybody's dying. That's what's going to happen. And so I did. I really liked this episode. I was afraid that Perry was just going to be on my nerves, but the the guy who uh, the guy who played him ended up doing such a good job with this character like it was it, it was somebody who should be on your nerves right it was somebody who should bother you and so it was he did it in a way where you simultaneously kind of you felt for the fact that he was one of the bastard children, that he was the youngest. He he talks about how everybody else has gotten their their piece of the pie because they come up with their business plan. And he's the first one who's ever been shot down. And you kind of start to feel for him because while he is rich beyond measure, he truly is a guy who's trying to kind of do it on his own. He's trying to find a way to establish himself as more than just being an usher. And so they did he they did a really good job making a guy that when you first meet him, you're just ready for him to die into a character where there is a little bit of sympathy when he does finally die, because he was genuinely just trying to make his mark in the world, which when we go back to episode one, 
was we find out that's all that Roderick was trying to do. And, and it eventually blew up into this big thing. He's just coming from a background of means and wealth, but still wants people to know who he is. He's not just the youngest usher child. They want him to know that they want he wants them to know that he is Prospero Usher, that he that this this is his thing. So that they he did a really good job establishing a very short kind of character arc within that episode that I really liked. You know, now that you say that, Daniel, just quickly, like I, I hadn't even thought about this before, but I think this is something that Flanagan does particularly well in this show is um, among the children. The ones that I think I'm going to hate the most are the ones I actually end up finding the most sympathetic. Right. And the ones that I think I'm going to find sympathetic, I end up like kind of hating the most. Yeah. yeah. And, and I never really thought about that until you just mm-hmm. mentioned that. But I, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. Oh, we we see that in, in Frederick and we'll, we'll get into that, you know, as, right. as yep. in, in the second half of the show. Yep. Exactly. Um, uh, but he, he's also a, a brilliant actor and mm-hmm. has has that sort of like. Uh, anamorphic ability to be able to to kind of just like shift into different gears um this might be my favorite episode of the entire show really um i think that um where most episodes they tend to be front loaded with family drama from flanagan's writing right and then kind of um slowly get into the Poe aspect of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that he manages to weave the mask of the red death more seamlessly into this episode than he does the other short stories into the other episodes. Um, this is also, I don't know if it's my favorite post story because it, like every day, my favorite post story changes. <laughs> right. um, uh, he is one of my all-time favorite writers. I absolutely love Poe. Um, this, to me, captures the feel, the essence of the story best, I think. Um, because we have a very vague understanding, because it's not really the point of the story, of who Prince Prospero is in the original short story. Right. But we know enough And I think that that is something where um, Perry in here, the only reason why we know any more about Prospero in in the show than we do in the in the story is because that actor is fantastic. And he was one of my favorite parts of Midnight Club. Yes. And uh, he was one of my favorite parts of this as well. Uh, He reminded me of people that I know. Um, So there was a little bit of sympathy there. But because I've read through this story so many times, um, I don't teach this grade level anymore. But when I used to teach uh, sophomores, I would teach the story every single year. Uh, I would couple this up with um, the Telltale Heart. And so I've read through this story uh, dozens of times. Um, I really came to hate Prospero. And as I became... um, more and more left of center politically, I I came to really, really (laughs) hate Prospero Um, because of everything that you see here, there is like, he has so quickly forgotten where he came from. And um, we get a sense that um, especially later in the show, um, I think there's a mention that 
Perry was only 16 when he was brought into the Usher family. Right. Um, he's not that old. So in a very short amount of time, he's gone from having nothing to having the world. And he still can't figure his way out of his situation. Um, and and where, where I do start to feel for him a little bit is that every other Usher sibling seems to have gotten some of their father's business savvy. Uh, of course, their father's business savvy is really just that Madeline is a fucking genius, right? But, right. Uh, but but there's something to him, you know. There's there's a there's there's some sort of gravity there that that is undeniable. Well, it's a char- um, it's a charisma, I think it is. Yeah, because Madeline has none of that. No, she she Madeline brain, talks to you. It's just yeah. like, oh my god, I'm I'm scared. I'm gonna I'm scared. Yes, yeah. Um, and and so it, Perry got none of that. Perry got shit and, 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 and Perry has no talent. Perry is, I think, um, a perfect representation of, um, this youngest generation, you know, uh, not gen, um, alpha, but, um, gen Z, um, where it's, you know, kind of that influencer, lifestyle where it's it, it, the social media plays such an important role in all of our lives, uh, not just in Gen Z, but because I think, you know, millennials had the ability to experience what life was like before social media and know what, um, what it was like to kind of see how influencers kind of morphed into this thing that they are today. Um, we know that or at least I would hope that most of us know that it's bullshit. Right. Um, that um, it can be a, uh, a job. And, um, but for most people, it's just getting yourself into debt to continue having more content. And that is what I think many in the, this young generation don't understand. Um, and they're so wholly consumed by this thing in front of them, this 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 black slate, that that thing is what drives the action in their life. And it's not coming from within. It's from without. And it makes those decisions that they make all the more reckless. And it makes those decisions that they make uh, all the more meaningless, too. Because when it's just um, for content – what are you really giving to the world? Um, maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, but it's flash in the pan and it's gone. It's not another brick in the wall, which was recorded, what, 50 years ago? And we're right. still fucking talking about another brick in the wall. If Roger Waters came today, I'd see him perform. And that's Perry. Perry is someone who never had the opportunity to grow up with either the love of a father or with a world that was willing to show him what it was like to truly work for for his uh for his earnings yeah and so this this is why he comes up with this plan because it's not really a plan it's a party and and every other usher child has some sort of talent we see it but the talent is just barely there because the talent doesn't really come from Roderick. It comes from Madeline, and that's not their mother. 
I think that like you're you said he didn't have a chance to grow up with like a father. He didn't have a chance to grow up with um, this sort of pre-internet knowledge. Um, it, it all points to like just to reduce it. Like he didn't. He never has a chance to grow up. And mm-hmm. I, I I agree with everything you're saying, but at the same time, I like I was saying I find him sympathetic because like. I mean, you're an educator. I'm an edu- we're all educators here. Um, one of the things that I see like with this younger generation is um, it's really easy for me to be like, fucking, please turn off your fucking phone, please. <laughs> but at the same time, I, I need to remind or, or what do you mean five pages is too much to read? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? You know what? It, but at the same time, I, I have to backtrack and remember like, they are a product and he is a, he is absolutely a product mm-hmm. of everything that kind of came before him. And the other point I, I would want to make that I, he, he doesn't have any business savvy. He only sees it through like influencer or, or making a party. Um, but let's not forget if, if his whole like product that he's trying to make is, 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 um, like pleasure mm-hmm. uh i don't Just know debauchery uh, what what is the what is what made the fortunato fortune right it's, right it's opioids yeah, like it's i mean good. yeah i mean like mm-hmm. he's not doing anything all that different he's doing it just in a way that we can kind of see as um uh more childish or more juvenile but at the end of the day, his product isn't all that different from what Roderick's is, except maybe that it's more like temporary. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point because, you know, his whole and really his, any of the the Roderick children. Yeah, because his whole thing is that he's going to throw these parties that that in when you're in them, all that exists is that moment right there. Right. So you're, you're supposed to be able to forget about everything else. And that's why it's supposed to be this anonymous, you know, debauchery ball. It's because well, you're just supposed to be in that moment. Anything that was troubling you before you went, you know, doesn't you know, doesn't matter when you're here. So I, I, I think that's a really good point, too. Yeah, and I hadn't really considered that all the all the children kind of work in that weird sort of like dopamine hit. Yeah, um, yeah they or, do. arena. Uh from Tamerlane to um Leo doing video to, games. To Leo doing video games. Yeah. Mortal Kombat. I was like, yeah. You know, even uh, even Camille being, I think, the one who is most legitimate in her in her business is really just providing you entertainment and, right. and, and, and escapism really. Um, because, um, you know, we, we, we can't really trust, um, shit. Uh, what's her name? Um, which one? Uh, Victorine. We can't trust Victorine because we know that she's Vic. a fraud. Right. Um, you know, so, um, but again, her work is in, giving you something because it's making your heart stronger. So, um, in, in the end, I think that, um, this really did capture, uh, the essence of who I always imagined Prospero to be someone who was looking out for himself, uh, and for the upper class and not for anyone else. Um, 
I think that it introduces a really interesting aspect of Carla Gugino's character. There we go. That's what um, I get to, you know, of, of who exactly she is and how she functions. Um, and I think that the the actual party is so different from what's in the story, the original story, and yet somehow plays out very, very similarly. Um, you know, a lot of that symbolism is gone, like with the colors in, mm-hmm. in the different uh, in, she does in still show up wearing rooms, red, but she shows up wearing red. She shows up in, you know, a, a, a death mask. And I think for me, the thing that um, one of the things that Poe does is the um, he never blows his load where you think he's going to. <laughs> Because uh, it's never uh, it's never about the um, go on <laughs> um, when, when you think it's like, oh, fuck, he's going to murder this guy now. That's never the thing. Okay, There's always okay. some other mounting tension that's going to to make you like, OK, but w- what's going on? And you're, you're you're in this rhythm of like, OK, OK, so how's he going to get caught? What's going to happen here? W- where is the big ah? And that happens here. Because we know where it's going. We know that they're testing the thing and we've read the story. So how right. do you make it fresh? How do you make us see, keep going? And it's by the introduction of Frederick's wife. Did yes. she make it out? Um, yes, Did she I'm... make it out? And you don't find out if she made it out until the next episode. Or or is it at the very end of this episode? No, yeah, it's no, the beginning of the well, next one. I think at the – yeah. When, well, and, um, and, and when just for, goes in. oh no, there is a hand that comes out, but you don't know who it is. Right, right. And 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 there's that question: Is that her? Who was that? And and or and, is it? What, I mean, my initial thought was that was that was Prospero. Actually, like when I first saw mm-hmm. that, I was like, oh, that's like so he survives, everybody else dies. Um, to me, that's that's part of the brilliance of this, and my counter argument to he doesn't understand Poe. I think, I think he does because each one of these episodes is fairly self-contained and that's, that was Poe's thing. Yeah. Right. He, he wrote very few novels. Uh, in fact, I think he only wrote he one. He only had one. Yeah. Um, yeah the, the Arthur uh, Pym. The, the Arthur Pym one. And, <laughs> yeah. um, and he wrote it really only because the novel had kind of exploded in Europe. And, and he was like, okay, well, I guess I got to do this. Uh, but his whole thing was like, I want to scare you in a very short time frame. I want you to sit down, start reading, finish reading, and then say, all right, I got to go change my pants now. And <laughs> right. that's, that's what happens here is we get many horror stories within one long family drama. To me, that story element is there. And not only is that story element there, but then the understanding of like, okay, there needs to be mounting tension there needs to be that big payoff and the payoff that you think was like this crazy sprinkler system the party's going crazy everyone's skin is burning off that's not the payoff the payoff is did she make it out and i i i really i really think that he does get poe here well if i could if i could do the other side of the coin away from the literature part um, if Mike Flanagan could just keep making shows and movies that give me a reason to see Car- Carla Gugino in oh, lingerie, yeah. like I'm here for that. Yeah. Like I just, woo, buddy, when he walks in that room and she's just like laying there on the bed talking to him, I was like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep, like it, it was that was something else. Yeah. So for 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 <laughs> for like your listeners or viewers, like so she plays this sort of 
character that is not a specific character of, of Poe. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, what what is it? Um, Vera, v- Verna, right? Verna. Because Verna. Yeah. because it's an anagram of Raven. Mm-hmm. Um, and, oh my God, it is, and, and this is and, why I have you guys. Okay. And and she's <laughs> she's sort of I don't know, like she's just like this sort of representation of uh, the guilt and debt that um, that Roderick is kind of in, and and so she she's the one that kind of appears in every episode and in, in various forms and kind of seals the fate of all of the children right and, and in mm-hmm. this one she's yeah and she's she's one of the revelers in this party she she seduces him in this back room um in fact she tells uh the sister-in-law the sister-in-law whatever yeah, yeah he, she tells her to leave and, and of course she mm-hmm. doesn't right but she's like she recognizes like you're not of this family you're not of this bloodline you need to leave. She doesn't. And hence she has this. And we have the whole thing of like, will she, or won't she? But- right. Mm-hmm. Morella is, is the, is the yes. Morella. Okay. Thank you. So, um, so as we finish that one up, like we say, we get into this place where, um, we're, we're seeing, okay, these are the stories. And, and then we, we, but then again, we're, we're looking at the overarching story. So we move forward into episode three, murder in the room morgue. So mm-hmm. anybody read this one, we know that some sort of monkey and or ape. Yeah. Is no, it's it's a it. fucking orangutan. And this is like, the, like, I'm sorry to be petty, but this fucking pissed me off so much in this episode. They only refer to it as a monkey or not only, but they mostly refer to it as a monkey. And then when we actually see fucking chimpanzees, where's the fucking orangutan? <laughs> I had the exact same thought. I was, like, I was like, I was like, wait a minute. Why are these all chimpanzees? I've read Murder the Morgue. Where's, there should be at least one orangutan. Uh, and so, it, and it was it, it was fucked up in the original movie as well. Uh, the one with um, uh, shit, um, Bella Lugosi. Um, okay. Yeah, they they also used a chimpanzee. So I don't know if that was like a callback to the the that original like Universal Monsters era movie. Um, but I mean, yeah. (laughs) But and 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 I and I understood too as I was watching. It's like, oh, like they're all calling it a monkey to just kind of emphasize the way that like they have no understanding of the creature right. that they're doing this terrible shit to. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, but, but it's, I was like, it's, it's an ape. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the episode where we get uh Camille. This is this, that we, we learn that Camille is in PR. She actually refers to him as Prince Prospera at one point mm-hmm. when they're trying to figure out how they're going to put the spin on this thing to make them come out on top. And so, uh, Dave, what did you think about getting Camille's character fleshed out in this episode? Okay, so um, I've said it before, and I will say it again. Um, Mike Flanagan is the most lucky man in the world. He is the luckiest guy because he gets to work not only with Carly Gugino, but with his wife, Kate Siegel. Um, I have been wholly obsessed with her for (laughs) years. It's unhealthy. Um, so I, I'm sorry to Kate Siegel. I'm sorry to Mike Flanagan. I'm sorry to my wife. Um, I'm, I'm just sorry to everyone uh, for the thoughts that I have about Kate Siegel. Um, so to, to to get an episode that is entirely hers, and I knew it was going to come eventually, you know, but for it to be the next episode after this, I was like, oh fuck, 
and it's titled The Murders in the Room Morgue. I'm like, fuck, I fucking love this story. I got to be honest. I don't give a fuck that it wasn't an orangutan. <laughs> to, to me, to me, it's uh, it's it, it. I mean, is it important? No. You no, know, it's, it's like, it, you know, I, I it's, when I read um, the James Bond books back in you know high school and college um i was reading through them and i was like oh what the fuck he doesn't use a walter ppk until like, <laughs> like the eighth book he's using them throughout the whole fucking movie series and that's like the whole thing that's his gun right um and it's like he, he doesn't even fucking drive an aston martin he drives a bentley and an old bentley you know he's working on a on a government salary you know so all these things i'm like does it change the fact that the movie's fucking rocked no and 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 so that's kind of my approach to this is does it affect the story and i don't think it affects the story in this one um i mean it would have be been nice to be clear, like, I, I, and I think I mentioned this, like, it is my pettiest complaint, probably, of this <laughs> entire show. Yes. I agree with you. It doesn't affect the story at all. It's no, more no, just, yeah. like, my affinity for animals that I'm like, ah, like. <laughs> um, I, I think that this one is particularly masterful in the way that it's written, not because it on its own is great, even though it is. But I think because of how it starts weaving the family drama into this and starts putting blame on other characters, right? Like the very early on, we're like, okay, it's probably Perry. Perry's a piece of shit. He's young. He's the newest member of the family. He's probably the mole, right? Which is not really a mole. And they keep, right. you know, doing the, this the, whole the thing. Informant you know, the, the informant. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the, I, the it's a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> So, what, what does he say? He says, so a mole is more uh, uh, DiCaprio and an informant, informant is Jack Nicholson. And like, she's like, Dad, what the fuck are you talking about? He's like, He's, he, was in, he was informing the feds the whole time. <laughs> the movie. I, 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 love, I love that his wife tells him, she's like, you know, you can make other references other than other the departed. Than the departed. <laughs> it kind of reminded me of like myself with Commando. Like I'm constantly going back to Commando. Um, or back on, or back on Geek More when it when it was always like, well, if you remember The Rock, <laughs> it was, yeah, we were always going back to The Rock. Speaking of James Bond, <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, I think that the the way that Victorine becomes the like the new kind of head person for like most likely informant is is great, and then the story here really is like woven into the next two episodes yeah so it's it's really really great because we we kind of get it as a b story in the black cat and then we get it as the a story in the telltale heart and mm -hmm. and to to me um like this is kind of the meeting of two of my favorite post stories the murder in the room morgue and uh the telltale heart um i think that everything that we get out of Kate Siegel as Camille Espana is fucking fantastic. And if you've read the story, you knew what was going to happen to right. her from the get go, because this is the first person who is murdered by the orangutan. She's shoved into a chimney. Like it's fucking awesome, you know? And, and, and we, we don't get that exactly here, but we, what we do get is a lot of tension mounting until we finally meet you know, Verna and Camille, 
in this showdown that to me is like it's really interesting because it reminded me of almost like the like a Sergio Leone style like shootout where it's okay. like these two characters and they're just like looking at each other and they're like who's gonna fucking crack first because Camille knows that all she has to do is make a phone call but she doesn't want to make the phone call she wants her she wants to influence her into opening the door but Verna knows that she has to open the door but also that she wants to make it as hard for her as possible. So there's this like standoff that's happening here. And it's fantastic the way that that was filmed, because usually when we see those standoffs, it's real tight shots, you know, like really like 75 millimeter in real tight. You're getting just the eyes and you're getting that, like the, the, the intensity there, but that's not what we get. We get these like really wide shots, security camera footage. It's really wide and you're seeing that distance between them. And it's like, who's, who's the one who's actually in charge here? Of course, right. Camille thinks it's her, but we know that it's Verna. And it's this amazing thing where we, as the audience know what she's walking into, which again is very Poe. Mm -hmm. It's very Poe for him to set up these characters. We know what's going to happen before it happens and yet when it happens it's that like gruesome awesome like you you know you're biting your finger but you can't look away sort of moment that's happening here it's the same thing that happens in any friday the 13th movie or any nightmare on elm street movie as soon as you know the dream sequence is started you're like ah motherfucker's gonna die right right but how's that gonna happen when are we going to see it happen? How long is he going to play with his food? And we get that here because as soon as she's let into the lab, to me, that's where this episode truly shines. Because, yeah, I mean, it's super fucking hot to see Kate Siegel like in this like weird thruple thing. It's even hotter <laughs> to see her get like all like boss babe on them um, because. I, I I don't know. I must be fucked up somehow, but I, I just want her to beat the fuck out of me. <laughs> just rip into me. Tell me I'm a piece of shit. Like I'm here for that. All right. What and, is she, what does she call? What does she call that? What does she call her? Oh, fuck. I don't uh, remember. Her name is actually Beth, but she's just constantly calling her uh, Tina. Tina. Yeah. So like Dave's like, yeah, call me Tina. <laughs> yeah. Call, call me Tina. I'll love it. I'll love it. Step on me with those heels. I'm fine. I'm 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 cool with it. All right. Um <laughs> my 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 um my lament configuration comes in, right? My Lamarchin box and out comes Kate Seagull. <laughs> exactly. Um, to show you. But um like as great as all that stuff is, for me, the really brilliant stuff here is when she's in that room. And we know what needs to happen. And it's just building because we don't see it yet. I'm like, okay, but it's coming. Where is it? Where is it going to happen? When we finally see Verna in there, to me, I wasn't thinking about, okay, well, Verna has transformed into the, you know, not orangutan. And then that moment where she takes a picture and it's the orangutan. That for me was the blow your load moment. That was the fuck. Yes, this is exactly the kind of thing that if Poe was a filmmaker today, he would have done. 
Yeah, and that that the the lead up to that moment with uh, with fuck it, I got mine, and then she takes mm-hmm. the picture like just going out, ex- like you know, died like she lived. Yeah, just, just owning every moment of what she did. This this episode also um, really really cemented what Eric was talking about with the idea of finding out that the characters you kind of thought you were going to like are maybe the ones that you don't like and vice versa because mm-hmm. this is the first episode where we start to find out that you know uh victorine is a fraud yeah, uh, that she's like the one i end up almost despising the most right exactly which is not how i think it's going to be at the beginning right because at the beginning and, you're like, oh man she's making pacemakers and like you know trying to keep people alive like and camille yeah, she's the camille, legit one yeah. camille i think i'm going to hate because it's just like man she's just a spin machine mm-hmm. gossip blah 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 but over the course of this episode and again it's only i mean it's the third episode functionally it's kind of the second episode right because right. the first one's just sort of an intro um and it's like that quickly in the show i'm like like my sympathies towards her like totally flipped yeah like, you, at least for me like i found her very sympathetic no yeah episode. absolutely uh, yeah i'm 100 with you because you 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 uh, you start to understand that she is somebody who is genuinely like the empire she's built in uh is to protect her family like she's somebody who is all in on this idea of being an usher and how important just that name is and so she built something that was going to protect her family and so yeah i mean she's you 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 see a lot of negative things about her but i don't think you're wrong in saying that by the end of this episode she's definitely a sympathetic character and like i said we we start that's where all these you know, all this stuff starts to just get twisted and turned and flipped upside down because as we learn more about these people, I agree with you completely. You start to see ones that you thought you were going to be into that you don't like and and vice versa. And yeah, by the end of this episode, I was, I, I liked Camille a lot. Mm-hmm. And I love the way that she just, that she carried herself. Like she was, she was totally bought in on just everything that was being an usher it was anything to protect the family it was it was you do what i say because of who i am like she had completely absorbed all of that while still maintaining her own identity within all of the bullshit that comes with being an usher you know this was the episode where i really started to realize how much like succession this show oh, is God. so i, mean, I this, haven't this, seen this is, succession but my my wife continued to say this throughout the whole thing she was like this is exactly like succession i was like okay i haven't seen it but i'm gonna have to disagree with you yeah like because I mean, it's not based on poe right uh even though this is like only kind of loosely based on poe right like it's not based on poe and it's not directed by mike flanagan so i could give three fucks oh yeah no it's no, no. It's, it's, it's haunted succession yeah it is it's, it's, it's haunted succession and you, you throw haunted in front of anything it's immediately better <laughs> yeah. and, so, and this this was the episode where where i where i was like where I, I feel like so much because at the beginning the family drama is all just about the fact that his kids have died and and that and that he's trying to you know kind of come to some sort of you know, some sort of end where he feels okay with that. But when we get into this episode, this is where that tried and true Flanagan family drama shines because we start to see the 
it, we got it a little bit in the one before this one when Frederick confronts Pro- Prospero and he was like, you are the result of the foundation of this house cracking into six pieces instead of five. And then in this one, we start <laughs> to get we start to get Camille and and uh, Vic getting at each other and you start to realize, OK, so there's more to this drama than just you know, three of the kids are bastards and two aren't blah, blah, blah. Like there, there's a lot of interpersonal stuff too. I mean, her, her assistants even bring it up at one point. They're like, what is it that you have against her specifically? Like, why are you so dead set on harpooning her? And so we, you, we start to get more of that, that drama element that always sells these Flanagan projects so well. I mean, you go to Oculus, you go to all his Netflix series, all his Netflix movies. It's always that drama that that constantly has you filled with a sense of dread that makes the the jump scares and the the as as Dave said, the load blows that much bigger and that much better because you're so invested in these characters. And I think that this is the first one where you really got on board with the the people that we were seeing play out. Yeah. It's it's four bastards and two, right? Oh, is it four Le, uh Leo, Vic, Camille, Prospero, yeah, yeah. Four, four. and then mm-hmm. Frederick and the other one. Tam, Tammy. Fra- Ta- yeah, Tamarin. yeah, no, yeah sorry, that's that's a different that's a different Simeon. Tamerlane. Yeah, Tamerlane. Um one of the things that with the with with this episode um you know the, I, is 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 rue morgue the the first appearance of depaul in post stories i think it is i, I think first. so i think um so. yes i think it yeah is. because it's, it's, i know that rue morgue is generally i mean is is usually considered to be the first detective story so yeah, so like the the story be. is the first introduction to poe's character of depaul um who is as we've already established like the sort of first detective figure in in literature um i don't know where i'm going with that but <laughs> I, I, yeah but, but i'm on board yeah <laughs> but you're right dude for, for anybody if, if you're not watching live this is one of those moments where you should have been because we literally just completely watched eric just the th- the train of thought go completely <laughs> off the rails like visually i was like okay he's got a point and then i, I, just I watched did eyes, and i like, don't know where it went um <laughs> I could, I could probably, but you, you caught know. yourself and you didn't think that the the train was still there and then fall on the tracks. <laughs> <laughs> so as we as we wrap this one up, we do get the what they also. Uh, I I really like that we didn't. That you know, one thing is they about Flanagan stuff is he he manages to paint a gruesome picture without ever going completely overboard with the gore. Mm-hmm. And so this one ends where obviously she just got mauled to death by an adrenaline fueled chimpanzee, but we don't have to sit and watch it, which would have taken away from that moment. Yeah. You know, it it absolutely would have destroyed that. We talk on this show all the time about how there are certain movies that need that. That was the biggest thing with the the Candyman requel. Mm -hmm was that it needed those moments. We needed to see the people take the hook and and get ripped apart. Flanagan is masterful in the fact that we didn't need to see the chimpanzee dismember her. We did not need to see her ripped apart to create 
the drama and the, the dread that we were getting out of this for this to be considered a horror series. It was still plenty scary because of all of the amazing things he did to lead up to that. And for as, for as often as we get on to directors about, you know, you should have showed us more. It was one of my biggest things with the original, uh, 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 Valentine's day massacre, right? Like, um, I like was, I was like, I wanted to see more of it. This was an opportunity where less was more. And I think the Flanagan pulled that off really well. So just as a question to that, what do you think about that? We, I mean, we do see quite a bit of, um, I mean, I guess not like, you know, excruciating gore, but we see a lot of uh, uh, blood and, and, and violence towards the chimpanzees. We, we mm-hmm. do. So, so like, how, like, I, I'm just, I mean, I haven't thought, hadn't thought about that, but like that we see that, but not the gore and violence to to her i i would i would put that on the idea of that showing us the way that they treat the chimpanzees is a vital part of building that character of victorine right okay um who yes. which I, I have not got to i believe the telltale heart's going to be her episode if i had to guess looking at yeah. the titles of them i haven't gotten there yet but what I, again, a character that I thought I was going to be on board with, I have already turned the corner on. And so I think that showing the way that she treats these chimpanzees is vital to the the ride that you're supposed to take in how you feel about her as a character. And that yeah. that was going to be my, my response is that um, when, I guess, usually, not everyone feels this way, but um, if you don't, you can fuck right off. Um, when when we see someone mistreat an animal that has an effect on us um or at least it should if it doesn't please seek help in in um, fact i i would even argue that in 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 cinema or or in t- in part of it is just we're so desensitized i in fact am like probably affected more when it's against an animal than a person absolutely yeah. because the animal can't defend itself um which is the same reason why we hardly ever see a child Right. get murdered in a horror movie right. and and uh, when we do it's usually off screen we don't actually see it happen because it's so brutal right and and it's it's so um emotionally arresting that's i think what we get out of the the violence towards towards the chimps yeah is is that you know victorine is not who we thought she was at the very beginning uh she's not even who her father sh- thinks she is uh because clearly he's putting his eggs in her basket and that's not going to be there for him because these these uh these experiments are not going the way that you know she's reporting them to go and or camille's her, onto her right away yeah or her what fiance slash lover slash right uh <laughs> science partner but basically yeah, yeah like literally every like i mean january said that she's a fraud but like she's somebody that Everybody thought she was different than who she actually ends up being. Everyone's like, mm-hmm. oh, this is this brilliant scientist. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, yeah, maybe sort of. I mean, she's on to something, but she ends up being this almost like Dr. Moreau, like mad scientist kind of character. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, and and it and it is really ultimately her, her desire to stay within the usher family Mm -hmm. um that is her downfall because her partner does tell her that like these results are tainted by the use of this drug of uh of of, was it ligadone that she was using Mm, yes um 
on on the on the chimpanzees because you've done that your results are tainted from the beginning and because she needs to kind of validate you know the the drug for um you know for for consumers in a way to help her dad out she's also feeling the need to use the drug so that she remains a part of the usher family because she she unlike tamerlane or or frederick needs to prove that because she is the first bastard and although she thinks Ooh. of herself as different from leo and different from camille and different from uh, from prospero because she was the first of the bastards she's not really right and and where the others don't need to um you know prove that they are worthy of their father's affection the others do mm-hmm. right so as we as we continue on, we so eventually Camille meets her end. This episode ends, and we get into episode four, the Black Cat. And in this one, we get uh, Leo Napoleon's story, mm-hmm. and and the bizarre kind of way that all of his shit plays out. I mean, <laughs> just this 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 one, it was stopping at four, so I only did half. This was a weird one to end on. Uh, it was just like, this was one where I was like, oh, my, like, I, I want to keep watching, but I had committed to the fact that I was only going to watch the four before this. But this episode was, I felt, to me, this one felt just weird. What do you think, Eric? This episode, like, when I when I told, I, I, I said before we started recording, like, I kind of began this show kind of sour and I warmed up to it. This is the episode that sort of turned it around for me. Um, this is the episode, like the, the scene at the end where, where his, I don't remember what his boyfriend's name is um, that comes into the apartments. Like what oh, the yeah. fuck is going on? And he's just destroyed the entire apartment with, with a Thor hammer. With a right? Thor hammer. Um, <laughs> and, and it like, this is, this is one of the episodes where I'm like, Oh, Julius. Get, Julius, yeah. he, he gets it. Like it's about the insanity. It's about the madness mm-hmm. in it. I will say, I one of the things I fucking hated about this episode, and this is more just personal, and I don't have the stomach that y'all have with watching horror movies, is just the actual stuff with the cat. Um, <laughs> uh, and and like when like after the after the the party the night before, when he wakes up and he sees like the, oh yeah, like yeah. that. I I. I got a heads up about it. I I saw it briefly, but I had to look away because kind of what we were just talking about with the chimpanzees is just like I can't yeah. fucking see that. Um, but as a whole, for like the overall uh, narrative of the show, this is this is the episode that I think really kind of turned my attitude around. Dave, um, so I. It didn't turn my attitude around because I, I was like on board from from pretty much the you know the the word go. But um, I fucking love this episode, um, and I've always loved this story because of the absolute insanity mm-hmm. of this story. Yeah. The story makes absolutely no sense. It's it's just a downward spiral, um, which I I loved pose stories like that when there wasn't really like a moral to the story it was just here's an insane scenario poe does madness like almost better than any other writer oh yeah yeah i i I can't think of anyone that does madness better than him because you can see yourself in that situation 
we've all been in situations where like we feel ourselves letting go of sanity and right. and 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 you know those those intrusive thoughts we push them out mm-hmm. and we just hold on to reality but what happens if that one day someone catches you on you know the 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 wrong day at the wrong time in the wrong place and all of a sudden um you know it uh you turn into leo right <laughs> you know you, you you're just fucking lost and no one ever knows when that day is going to come you know you you listen to people all the time about you know like the guy who takes a shotgun into his office building and blows a bunch of people away they're like he was the nicest guy in the world he was so quiet. He was so he was so nice. What the fuck happened? Oh, he just fucking snapped. And and right. that's that's what I think is ultimately so scary about these kinds of post stories. And and because through the insanity, I think these are the kind of post stories that we laugh about. Yeah. Because I can mm. see myself in a situation where um I go just absolutely bonkers and destroy my house looking for that fucking cockroach <laughs> fair yeah you know especially if it had it just gr- scratched your eyeball exactly Ugh. um you know and 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 it actually has happened to me with a cockroach because my my wife is you know she's great but when it comes to like bugs like she 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 turns into uh into a child She's like, I, I need it. I need it away. I can't go to sleep if I know it's there. I'm like, well, I don't know where the fuck it is. So now I got to turn this this fucking house upside down. Do you have a Thor hammer? <laughs> I do, have Mjolnir. I do have Mjolnir. Yeah, she actually she she, she bought me a tool set where that where the, it opens it up around the hammer, out. and the hammer is the handle for Mjolnir. It's awesome. It's fucking awesome. <laughs> so I do have a Mjolnir. Um, and and I, it has happened before where it's like we're about to go to bed. It's like eleven thirty. It's twelve o'clock at night. I'm fucking falling asleep. This thing is turned off already. You know, it's no good. And then all of a sudden there's a spider that scampers across, you know, the 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 top the the top of not even the wall where our you know our our headboard is on the other side of the room. She's like, okay, well, I can't go to sleep now. I'm like, well, fuck, that means I can't go to sleep until I kill that. Thing. <laughs> and then I go fucking nuts trying to get it. Right. You know, and then it scampers away. And then once you finally kill it, guess what? It was fucking pregnant. And now you gotta fucking fix that shit. You know, because now there's a bunch of little baby spiders all over the place. All right. And that's what they didn't tell you in Charlotte's Web is that that shit fucking gets everywhere. And now all those little spiders, they don't fucking know how to spell. What do they know how to do? They know how to fucking bite you. Yeah. Right? You, you know, so, you know how you know how you avoid that. This is what I do. I get a cup and a piece of paper and I put it on the spider and I put the spider outside and I don't kill it. And it can let its eggs go outside because <laughs> um, that's what my wife is like. She's like, there's a spider. I'm like, I'm always grabbing them and holding them in my hands or in a cup. I don't, I don't, I don't really, the nope, only bugs nope. I'll, the only bugs I'll kill are yeah. Cockroaches, mm-hmm. um, mosquitoes and ticks. No, nope. once, uh, based- once the spider's in my house, it has violated the Scovia cords and um, it must be dealt with. Um, so uh, <laughs> for me, it depends on the spider. Um, if they're outside, um, and they are non-venomous. I am totally cool with them hanging around. Uh, so we have like wolf spiders and we have, right. um, you and know, those are the, fucking scary looking. Like if you yeah. just see a wolf spider, it's like, holy shit, that thing's going to kill me. It's like, no, no, it's actually, it's great because it keeps, uh, you know, it keeps other insects away. So it's, it, it's fantastic. I love keeping those things around those little crab spiders. I forget what they're called, but the, the, we have them all over the place here in Miami. <laughs> they're cool fucking dudes. Right. <laughs> 
but we also have brown recluse here and um there is no chance in hell that i see that thing and don't immediately fucking kill one it happened to me the other day in my fucking truck Ugh. all right Ugh, i was yeah. i was picking up my kid from school he's sitting down right and i'm making sure he's he's got his seatbelt on you know, i don't want to take off without him having a seatbelt on and i'm looking at like the the little sliver between the door and the chassis and i'm like i know what the fuck you are because I've seen you before and and I got to kill this thing because otherwise if it gets in the car, guess where it's going? It's going to him first because right. it's closer to him. Um, so I just killed that motherfucker. That's Fuck totally you. that's yeah, yeah totally. Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I live in, I live in the frozen north where we don't I was I was that. just about to say, like, now that you moved up to the great white north, you, do you know, you probably don't deal with as many bugs as you did when you were down. No, here, right? no, I don't. I, I don't like thank God I don't really deal with cockroaches <laughs> hardly at all. Um, we have spiders. Uh, mosquitoes are in the summer they're almost worse up here than down there. really uh, they're they're well they're bigger oh uh, okay but but i mean elizabeth and i were camping last weekend we didn't deal with a single fucking bug because well, at night time it's in awesome. 40 it's 45 degrees right like they're all gone so that's awesome so one of my takeaways from this episode of the black cat yeah. that, that, yes that I the black cat yeah, <laughs> um was the performance of Malcolm Goodwin in this episode as young Dupin. This mm-hmm. is the episode where oh. he, um, where we see him kind of confront Roderick Usher about the fact that his signatures on all of these forms. And he yeah. thinks these have been that he thinks that these have been forged. And it, we, we get this as kind of the backstory of how they met for the first time. But when the first time, this was not the first time you saw Malcolm Goodwin as young Dupin. But this was the episode where, I mean, this guy, I mean, flexed his ability to act when he when he's getting ready to leave uh, their house because they're like, I can't I can't recall if I did or didn't sign these forms, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, you know, there's a lot of people can't recall a lot of things like, uh, or, you know, are they concussing you over there? And then he and then he does the whole the whole detective thing. Yeah. Right where he looks around and he's like, I see that that jar of that honey. Was such a great I, moment. I know you've got two kids and the, the oldest one must be asleep. He must be sick. I see the echinacea just I, and like when he when he gives that whole heartfelt thing of I understand where saying the wrong thing would be very bad for your family. And so he doesn't just get pissy that that they stonewall him, you know, that he he makes them understand that he knows why they're doing it the he way they're it. doing it. Mm-hmm. That I was almost in tears, like as he as he gave that little speech, it was just it was so good and it was so powerful. And just him acknowledging the fact that that he doesn't necessarily put the job he has to do above the plight of of a, of a working class family. And I, I loved that moment. And I thought that it also did a lot for the building of Roderick Usher as a character to to understand more you know just how low he was because by the time we when we meet him initially we just get the guy who's the ceo of a multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical corporation and we've slowly been learning that he had to work his way up to that it wasn't just gifted to him but in that moment just it wasn't just about seeing you know, that, that, that he was in this small apartment or knowing that he was down in the mail room or whatever. It was, it was ab- about acknowledging that it was like, this is a guy who just, he's come from knowing real pain 
and real suffering. And and, and so again, it it adds. Not only did Malcolm Goodwin just do amazing while delivering that thing, but it also just built again a character you shouldn't. It it pains me to say that I have any sympathy towards a character who's the the CEO of a multi billion dollar corporation. Like it's painful to me, mm-hmm. but. In that moment, you start to be like, okay, this is why he is the way he is about his kids, about his family, about his money, because this is what he's dealt with. And that scene is my favorite scene in this show so far. I just love the acting in it. I love the way that it set things up. I love the way that it built the character, uh, the characters of Dupin and uh, and Usher even further. I just thought that everything about that particular flashback scene was amazing. And and also mm-hmm. um, his wife, his his first Annabelle wife. Lee. Yeah, Annabelle yeah. Lee. Right, like this is where you see like she and and you, if you know po- poetry, this is kind of in in a lot of it, but that she is like this really kind of pure being. Right. Um, and then also it, it really adds weight and gravity to the framing of, of Dupin and, and Usher in the room in the house of Usher that they have this history. This is how they have a friendship. I mean, Dave, one of the things you said, like, you know, in, in the story of the fall of the house of Usher, the narrator is just like vaguely like, Roderick Usher was my friend and I went over to talk to him. Right. (laughs) Right. And this is where we learn like, Oh, he's not just necessarily shoehorning in Dupin who in the stories is very different than the, the character in the show, but that it's, it shows like, Oh no, he is that he is like this friend. They have a, I mean, how long ago is that? I mean, they have like a 40 year connection rivalry. Yeah rivalry mm-hmm. but also but not just but it's there's a there's a respect in that rivalry there's an mm-hmm. admiration for one another in that rivalry like it's not just like a nemesis like right um there's there's something there's a bond between them and and mm-hmm. i think as daniel's saying in the, in this flashback we have a better better understanding of why and how that yeah. bond has been built and why roderick invites of all people this guy to come tell his story to he's the only one who would understand right and 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 sometimes the the bonds with the people that we have those falling outs with are stronger than the people who were by our sides the whole time um and you're right we hadn't mentioned annabelle lee this entire time um, there were, she, that was for me, a, a bigger Easter egg than, um, than the other one I'm going to mention, but I loved that we did get Annabelle Lee because for me, that is one of the most beautifully written of Poe's poems. Um, the other where we got, I think just a vague, you know, little drop there. And it's my favorite Poe poem is, uh, the bells. Um, and I can't remember if it's this episode, um, but there's a moment where he's sitting in front of, you know, the wall in the basement of Fortunato and he talks about hearing the bells. And, um, I think that if you have seen this show and you haven't read much Poe and you find it compelling, please, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's in the public domain. You don't have to pay right. anything to to read his work. It is brilliant. 
It's absolutely brilliant. And if um, if you've read some of them and you're 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 saying, well, I don't know that this does it justice, go and read them because maybe it doesn't do it justice for you, but it deserves to be read. Um, you know, and, and to, to me, that is one of the things that this show does. I think better than anything else beyond being a great work of Flanagan's, it is a great way to open up people to literature, which I don't think happens much anymore these days, sure. uh, particularly the classic stuff. Um, I, I think that very often we go into, you know, a, a Barnes and Noble or something, and we're just bombarded by these these new novels, which I don't think are aiming to be good novels at all. I think they're aiming to be movie series, and right. um, and and that's okay. Everyone deserves to you know to have success in whatever way that success looks like to you. But I want to read a good book, or I want to I mean, read a good story, and and at, I I think that there's so much great classic literature that we aren't looking at anymore, and um where that started for me was Poe. So this is really special for me to be, I mean, to be fair, I like, I, there's a ton of awesome literature being written right now. Like some of the yeah. poetry being written right now, some of the novels being written right now are fantastic. But like your point to Barnes and Noble makes sense because that they're not, they're not concerned with um, a product that is uh, engaging or thought provoking literature. They're engaged with sales and, and, right. Yeah, that, that's their business model. You can't hold it against mm -hmm. them. Like that's what right. they do. And so, like, mm -hmm. there it does create this idea that that's what that's what's being written right now. And mm -hmm. kind of forget like there's tons of really good stuff. Yeah, I, I I hope I didn't come off as like like an angry angry English professor, uh, <laughs> which, which which I know is very easy for me to do. Uh, same way I'm like, oh, you know, these kids with with their music, you know, I miss the the rock and roll of the of the '70s. Yeah, you, you know, like you there's got, you there's got kind of music old man yelling too. at clouds there. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm sorry that was that was not my uh, that was not what I what I intended to do. Um, uh, because yeah, the, I I do think that the problem there is with you know bookstores and not with um, and Barnes and Noble is not the only one. Uh, it's just the biggest one. Right. Um, you know, but there is good literature out there. Um, go, go and read it. And, right. and if you don't know where to start, start with Bo. There we go. So <laughs> there you have it. We're halfway through fall of the house of Usher. We are going to kind of split it right here. And we're going to approach the second half of it, but it's going to be two weeks from now mm -hmm. because uh, a week from now, we are fortunate to be recording actually on Dia de los Muertos. And so we are going to finally get a Rob zombie film on here. And we're yeah. going to do three from hell, a, um, a perfect movie to record an episode on that day so eric will be back with us in two weeks eric thank you so much for coming on today you've been awesome uh tell everybody about your podcast where they can go and listen yeah uh again thanks for having me uh projectionist lending library we're on all the main things you can find us on instagram at pll lib uh and uh, pll podcast and twitter at pll lib so yeah okay nice. so make sure you check them out you know there and I hopefully when we will come back in two weeks, we'll finish this up. And I know we've talked a little bit about an even deeper crossover where we all kind of approach it the way that you do your show with watching the movie and doing the book. So hopefully we'll make that happen. If you are listening or if you're, excuse me, if you're watching live, 
then you are experiencing the last time that we are going to do this podcast and be able to say that Dave and I have never met in person. Yeah. We are less than 48 hours away from uh, heading to Orlando for Spooky Empire to meet in person for the first time. So if you're in the Orlando area and you're going to meet Spooky Empire, make sure you find us. We'll be around. Uh, we'd love to meet you. We're uh, going to try to meet as many people as we can, get a bunch of great pictures, some sound bites, some things like that. So we hope to see some of y'all out at Spooky Empire. Uh, we will be back with Fall of the House of Usher in two weeks. Back next week with um, Three from Hell. Make sure you head to shiverpod.com where you can get links to all of our social media. We use Instagram the most, but we are on Facebook and Twitter as well. All of those things at shiverpod. And at shiverpod.com, you can also find a link to our T Public site where you can mm-hmm. pick up uh, our awesome new shirt with art from Ellie Ray. Um, it is amazing. Uh, we love it so much. So make sure you head there, grab a shirt. We hope to meet you this weekend. Um, oh, uh, Eric, before I forget, and so I say it here while he's still watching, uh, David Dupree says hi. He apparently can't comment um, <laughs> due to his Facebook stuff right now, but uh, he texted me. Hey, to Dupree. Tell you, he, he texted me to tell you he says hey. Tell Zoe so, hey. There we go. So we hope to see you guys. Head to shiverpod.com. We'll be back next week with uh, uh, Three from Hell. Absolutely. So on behalf of all of us here at Shiver, fright you very much.